Tis the season to shine with H&M. Discover the holiday collection and find fashionable pieces for your wardrobe or for under the tree. Get inspired and dazzle with this year's glam. From tuxedo styles, bow detailed pieces, impressive prints, and more. From unforgettable looks to unforgettable gifts. With fashion finds to home decor, find it all at H&M. Treat your loved ones and yourself this season. Shop in-store or at hm.com. Today, I have two ladies, Ruth and Donnell, and we are talking about a heavy subject matter. But I don't think it was a heavy podcast, which I think is really good. Um, We are talking about suicide today, suicide prevention. Um, Donnell is an attempt survivor and now has um, dedicated a lot of her life to improving mental health for herself and for other people. And um, Ruth, Ruth's mother, uh, committed suicide. So she is a suicide survivor also, I guess, in a different way. And I don't know. I just wanted to talk about this topic. I think that we have a lot of people at home in COVID feeling depressed, hopefully not suicidal, but feeling depressed and feeling down and maybe having thoughts like this. So I thought it was good to talk about this from the perspective of Donnell, who has survived attempting, and from the perspective of people who have survived having lost people, because I've lost a couple people from suicide, and obviously Ruth lost her mother. So um, I don't know. I think it's just an important conversation to have. So I hope you enjoy it. I mean, enjoy is a strong word. Learn from it. How about that? I hope you learn from it, because I learned from this episode, as I tend to do from most of my conversations. So I hope you learn from it too. Uh, even though it's a heavy subject matter, I think it's an, a very important one. So thanks for coming back every week. Uh, just a reminder, the resilience-based parenting, I have two scholarships available. The link is in my wifeotp.com under my links to great things, or links to good oh. things tab. What'd you say? Link is also in the description below. Oh, and the link is also in the description below. If you'd like, there's a, a clear path uh, from that link on how to sign up to get a scholarship uh, for resilience-based parenting. And what else? We're working on our book club. I think next week we'll have a book, book club meeting for the last bookstore written by my friend, uh, Brooke. And yeah, I guess that's it. I hope everybody's doing well. And thanks for coming back. I hope you learned from this episode as much as I did. And um, take care of yourself and take care of the people that you love. Hope you enjoy. I rode my bicycle past your window last night. I roller skated to your door at daylight. It almost seems like you're avoiding me. Are you ready? Always <laughs> ready. All right. Yeah. So I know neither of you have been on my podcast before, but have you listened to one of my podcasts before? Just curious. I have. I, I, I have not. I 
Yeah, I will for sure. <laughs> totally. Well, you have to listen to this one now. After well, yes, but I but, will um, listen to more. <laughs> I, my whole point, one of my main reasons for starting this podcast was to learn. I'm a super curious person and um, learning is really important to me. And this is going to be a learning episode for me. Um, I don't want, I'm going to preface all of this with, I believe this subject to be very serious and um, to be very serious, but I am a humorous person filled with levity. So if I ever have a moment of joking, I don't want anyone to think that I don't take this very seriously because I do, but levity heals so much, so much. So if we can find some way to, uh, if, if people listening can just have that perspective that I'm here to learn and that it's okay sometimes to laugh at hard things, if it's natural. Well, so both of you have met me, so we know that's all, all in. <laughs> <laughs> yes, no problem there. Yeah, um, I could not agree more. I could not. That is so everything you said just completely speaks to me. So I am, I am all in, like she said. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Yeah. So then let's jump right into this heavy duty subject matter. What are we talking about today, ladies? Talking about suicide. Suicide. Yeah. Suicide loss, suicide prevention, mm -hmm. suicide awareness, just suicide. Just the whole burrito. Mm -hmm. The whole burrito. Oh. The whole burrito. So tell tell everybody why you why we're I'm talking to you specifically. How are you connected to suicide? How, what's your story? What do you do now? Um, I'll go. You want me to go? Sure. Um, I met Leanne through her dogs. Um, and I recently was asked to give a group of moms um a suicide prevention and awareness talk um because they were worried about somebody in their in their kids' circle. And through that, Leanne asked if I could come on and, and speak about suicide. Um my personal story is that I lost my mom to suicide when I was 19 years old. So I was a sophomore in college and it pretty much derailed my life and everything I thought my life was gonna be, mostly because my family never talked about it. So 30 years later, I had my own little um, mental health crisis in the target, um, <laughs> little panic attack. And um, that sent me into a depression, which made me start looking into all this. And I realized that as much as the suicide was a huge part of my issues, more it was the talk, not talking about it and kind of suffering through this all in silence. So since then, it's kind of become my mission just to open up that conversation. And I'm actually, I, I have my background's in television, but I'm doing my first film right now. Um, and it's get it's about me breaking the silence with my own family in hopes of inspiring others to do the same. So brave. Thanks. That's really brave. Um, okay, Donnell, tell me your story. Okay. <laughs> I'll try to shrink it, right? Because no need to there's shrink. many, <laughs> there's so many chapters. Um, I, I am a product of the biology. And so mental health struggles and suicide, in fact, are something that is a history in my family. I have lost my grandmother, who was at the time my absolute best friend. I have lost other grandparents. I have lost friends. And I am actually a suicide attempt survivor. And wow. like Ruth said, for so many years, there was no discussion within my family. In fact, for 
pretty much my entire childhood, I didn't even know the real reason or the real circumstances of my grandmother's death. I was told that she got sick and passed away. And it wasn't until I was um, 16 that my mom finally opened up and explained what actually happened. And I am so thankful that she did, although once that discussion took place, that was the end of it. There was no other conversation around around her story or around the struggles that were, you know, a long line of, of that in my family. So I silently suffered for many, many years and not understanding it. And like you said, like now looking back, I see how critical educated education is and really Mm -hmm. just understanding it. So, um, my first real dark place took place. Um, just between that, finishing out my teenage years, becoming, you know, an adult, um, and, and circumstances led up to my attempt. And I am so very grateful and so blessed that my purpose here on earth was not, was not done. I had not discovered what that purpose was. So I, I am an attempt survivor and I've continued to struggle for many, many years. Um, with my my second child, my son, I was diagnosed with severe postpartum depression, but I didn't mm-hmm. get that diagnosis for almost three years after he oh, was wow. born. So many, many days of just, you know, pushing away those feelings and pushing away that darkness and faking fine, putting on a smile. But in reality, inside, I was absolutely dying in every sense of the word. So um, it happened to be on a good day, actually, that I decided I'm going to educate myself. I want to know what this is so so that I can figure out how to deal with it. Mm -hmm. So I quickly hit Google, of all things. And the first thing that popped up was the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. And they were having a community walk that weekend. So I registered. I recruited a couple friends, had no idea what I was in store for. And I, I mean, I met Ruth, I met, I I met a tribe, a community of people that just understood. And it was like, I remember standing in the middle of the park, just overwhelmed, but in all the most beautiful ways, crying, Mm -hmm. saying, I found my people, (laughs) Mm -hmm. they get me. And And that was it. I called the director that afternoon, said, you don't know me. I was at this walk and I'm, use me. (laughs) How can I help? How can I volunteer? And since it has opened so many opportunities, I'm now an educator with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. So I've had the opportunity to work with junior highs, high schools, and colleges, um, as well as the school districts and parents. Um, I'm a certified life and health coach with a, a focus on mindset and, and just mental health as a whole. And I just locked arms with the first ever mental wellness company, Amari Global. So I'm a wellness partner and trying to get their message out of, of an all natural holistic approach to mental health. Um, it, when I say I live, eat, breathe, sleep, mental health, I do. <laughs> and so does my family. <laughs> That's great. There's Thank so you. many things I want to talk about in what you two have just brought up. One is your tribe. How important is it to find your tribe? I mean, isn't it, it's just transformative, right? To feel understood 
in a way that is it's um like I, I found my tribe out here, but not from my mental health stuff. I read a book, one book, and I've read millions of books, well, not millions, but lots of books. But I read this one book where I went, oh my God, someone was watching my childhood and writing it down. And now I know that this is formulaic and that other people have this, you don't know my background, but I believe my mother has a personality disorder. She's never been diagnosed, but from the books I've read, that's my diagnosis. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I read this one book and I went, oh my God, that answers every single question. It's such a freedom. Is wow. that what you experienced when you found that tribe? What you just described? Or did you feel yeah. like you were like, oh my God, I'm free. I had the same exact experience she did. It's because, and I use the same words. I found my people because I had, like I said, I didn't talk about it in 30 years and it never occurred to me to talk about it to anybody. I knew other people had obviously suffered the same kind of loss, but I didn't know it was a thing. Like that's something you could talk about. And, and also I had opened up to a few people over the years, but when I did, I always you know, had to explain, oh, my mom was a social worker and she wasn't able to help people any longer. And, you know, all the excuses and rationalizations. And at the walk, the second you say my mom died by suicide, they're like, come here, you know, and it was just, it's just this instant connection and no, no qualifying, no explaining, no anything. It was just that immediate connection. And I, I felt it that day. And like her, I, I called the, the director the next day. I'm like, what do you need? And I jumped all in and, and kind of made it my life for a couple of years. That's amazing. That's amazing. A hundred percent. Yeah. And I love, I love the way you describe it. it. It really is like a freedom. It's like immediately all of these weights are lifted off your shoulders. Mm-hmm. And this is a community of people that there's no judgment. Right whatsoever. It, I mean, you can't say the wrong thing. There's just, there's no judgment. They're so welcoming and understanding. And so I think, I think so much of my mission is to ensure that other people feel that in some way, it may not be through a walk or, you know, but if it's through my educating or just me sharing my story, mm-hmm. because I think, I think there is obviously such a stigma around it. And one of the messages I always like to get out is, you know, my life from the outside looking in, looks pretty darn good. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm a very blessed person. And I remember the first time I started to really come out and share my story, I had old employees reach out saying, I had no idea. I had no idea. And so my message is we got to check on everyone because you Mm -hmm. just, even the strong, even the ones that seem to have it all together, because you just really never know. So that's, that's really my driving force is I want other people to experience that same freedom. Like you said, absolutely. Well, I think the, shouldn't it be that there's no judgment anywhere, no judgment on bipolar, no judgment on schizophrenia, no judgment on addiction. There should just be no judgment anywhere, really, because the judgment is, is what creates the shame, which creates the silence which perpetuates the mental illness. And that is like this horrible shame cycle that society has put in place that it takes a few people, you know, one brick at a time to go, why don't we just take that out? You know, why would you ever be ashamed that you were sexually abused? Why? You should not be ashamed of that. You should say, this is something that happened to me. How do I understand it better? How do I understand myself better? And how do I heal? Really, because 
is very few people on the planet that don't have a broken part. Very few people just have no broken part. I mean, it's not possible. I was talking to my kids the other day. My daughter and I were um, in a debate about whether or not she could do something that I felt was not safe. <laughs> and we were debating back and forth and back and forth. And at some point in this conversation, I said, listen, someday you're going to start unraveling the trauma I have caused you. And I have. And I didn't want to, and I didn't mean to, and I'm trying my very best, but every single parent causes trauma on every single child because that's just the way it works. I mean, you know, there's that one time I yelled at you that for you, that was a deal breaker for someone else. It may not have mattered, but the the point is you're going to have it. So you may as well just prepare yourself, embrace it. Enjoy the unraveling of it, because if you can really start to enjoy the unraveling, I think it makes you appreciate yourself so deeply when you start going, wow, look at all these things I survived or look at all these things that I figured out a workaround for. I'm pretty damn smart. I mean, if you if we could if we could have society think that way instead of I'm so ashamed to tell anybody that this happened because neither of you talked about these uh, suicides in your family for years. I have a personal friend who uh, died of an overdose, but I believe it was purposeful and her mother had committed suicide and she found her mother when she had um, killed herself. And her father had said, this will never be spoken of again. Your mother's name will never be spoken. And I believe fully the reason she ended up where she was as an addict was because of that one choice. We will never speak of this again. And for her, it just destroyed her. I believe that with every part of my soul. What a shame. I mean, it does a lot of damage in my family. You know, nobody even actually said, don't speak about this. We just kind of didn't. Like I would say, yeah. as we buried her, we buried all talk of her, you know, because I really feel like we walked away from the cemetery. The mood kind of got lighter, you know, when you go for something to eat afterwards and people just start talking about other stuff and just never went back there. And and, you know, when when my sister and I finally when I broke the silence, um, you know, it seems like a lot of her silence came from not wanting to hurt other people, not wanting. You know, that's one of the cliche reasons people don't talk, not wanting to pull the scab off the wound and stuff. And like, I don't think I ever felt that way, maybe really early on. But it wasn't like I'm like, oh, daddy's going to get upset if I say mom's name. It was just like this thing like I couldn't. It, it felt over and done and just like. I didn't know what would happen. Like I wasn't scared of it, but there was just, I couldn't. And there's, there's no explanation for it, but that's what happens. And then you're trapped inside and and you don't even understand that other people could possibly feel the feelings you're feeling because right. you've never seen it discussed anywhere and you're not able to discuss it anywhere. So it kind of just plays on itself. And if you don't start trying to articulate your feelings, then sometimes you can't understand them. Like I know sometimes I'm in therapy. I've been in therapy for years. Sometimes I'll start talking about something and I'll go, wait a minute, this is not about this at all. This is about something entirely different. And then you go, oh, wow, look at that. That was the bottom of that problem. And I thought it was this up here. So that's the hard part too. If you don't know what to say, it's hard to start talking. 
but I think you just have to start talking. That's, that's the, yeah, you do. And I think, I think so much of the shame that surrounds it is a lack of, a lack of understanding, not, not so much even with somebody like me who struggled, but a lack of understanding for the people that I would be speaking to. Right. Right. They're not going to, I think a defense mechanism is to put this, you know, barrier up that you can't talk about that. Oh, what's wrong with you? But it's more like, you know what, I would really like to learn about that. That's, you know, so I think so much of it is definitely understanding for ourselves so that we can properly um, explain and educate others. But I think just opening it up, opening up the topic more so that people who don't understand can learn. There were family members, even just a few years ago, who I never really talked about mental health with and my struggles with. And the second I just started almost unloading on them, it was like, wow, I had no idea. I didn't understand it. Thank you for sharing. So I think it's definitely a two-way street in that sense. For sure. I've never had a bad experience opening up to somebody, you know, and Mm -mm. and more often than than not, I found it gives other people permission to open up to me. And most of them will say, I've never talked about this before or I haven't told very many people this. And then they kind of tell you in confidence, but they, but you can tell it's just like, I felt like, oh my God, people talk about this. I can talk about it. You know, it's, it's not so scary once you do. Once you do. Right. It's a, it's, I think inviting curiosity, uh, from other people, uh, and from yourself to invite curiosity into your mental health process, right? Because being curious is being an observer more so almost than an experiencer, right? If you're curious, Mm -hmm. you can say, what am I feeling? And why is this so strong? And why can't I articulate it? And how do I get some help for this is very different than, well, this feels terrible. And I don't want to feel that. And this is really hard. And this kind of sucks. Well, yeah, that's true. But if you can be curious about those feelings, I think you can help yourself exponentially faster than if you are judging your own feelings or afraid of them, because really all our feelings are natural. You know, maybe if you're a psychopath, you have a few that aren't. But for most of us working around, walking around, fear, grief, shame, guilt, um, physical pain, emotional pain is that's kind of part of the game. It's kind of part of the game. So being curious, I think for me, I shifted my mindset a long time ago from being reactive to being curious. And I'm not always, I'm not perfect. Sometimes I'm reactive, but that was another form of freedom, right? To just be curious instead of, well, that sucked. That's not going to be good. Um, I don't know. What do you think about that? I definitely, yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. And I, you know, it reminds me of like the day that I decided to start doing some research and I was finally in a place of curiosity. Like, what is this? Cause I'm done feeling this way. Mm-hmm. I want to be able to cope and move forward. So I just need to learn about it. And, you know, I did it privately, of course, but, um, what a, what a shift in my path. My goodness. I can't imagine had I not come to that place where I would be today. Yeah. 
that's the thing, right? The shift in the path. So mm-hmm. if someone is on this path of feeling, um, there's, I have, I have two guests here, right? I have Ruth who experienced this from the outside and Donnell who experienced it from the inside, right? So let me ask you, Donnell, is there anything anyone could have done to have gotten you off that path when you got to the place where you were so dark, you wanted to say goodbye? Um, at that moment, no, because I was so, I was so good at faking it, Mm -hmm. um, and and hiding my true deep, dark feelings. Mm -hmm. I will say that, um, I had such an amazing close relationship with a best friend and she's really one of the main reasons I believe that I'm here today because I was able to reach out to her and and she had this ability to read between the lines. So I never actually came out and said, you know, X, Y, Z is going to happen. Right. You know, it, I didn't share a whole plan. Um, it was really, it was really the snap of the fingers, how quick my mind shifted to that's the place that you want to go. Mm. And for whatever reason, I don't know. Um, I picked up the call. I picked up the phone and called her and I said, I think this is it. Like I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. And I mean, within minutes, she was at my house. Thank goodness. Um, but in the, in, you know, looking back in that time, I don't, I don't think so. And I think that's part of the struggle. You know, there are warning signs and there are things to look for, but that's, you know, not going to necessarily be every single case. That's not going to be every single story. And so that's why I think I'm so adamant on checking in on everybody all the time. Mm-hmm. Not just if you happen to see something's a little off or something has shifted, but checking on people genuinely all the time. Right. How are things going? Fine. Mm-hmm. No, really. How are things going? How are you handling, you know, the pandemic? How are you handling whatever situation that they might be in? And really trying to dig a little bit deeper mm-hmm. and reach in because for me, I wasn't going to reach out. I wasn't going to call anybody and tell them this is what I'm feeling. So we really need to get better as a society of reaching in and checking in on every single person, every loved one, colleagues, whoever. I agree. Um, I wonder too. So um, one of Bert's closest friends from childhood to adulthood um, committed suicide. Um, about maybe six years ago. And, um, you know, the, I should have called him that one more time. Mm -hmm. I should have reached out that one more time. He called me and I didn't call him back. He called me or well, this case, he called Bert. Bert was shooting something. He was in the middle of shooting something and said, I'm going to have to call you back. And then didn't. And it was like a week later that he passed away. And, um, I talked to my therapist about it, obviously, because it was extremely upsetting and, uh, you feel, have so many feelings, um, of guilt and helplessness and, um, sadness. I was so deeply sad that he felt he didn't want to be here anymore as there's so much to live for. And he obviously did not agree, um, And that makes me feel so sad because even just looking like at a mountain while I'm driving on the 101, I go, that's just majesty. It's just amazing. Just live to see that. Can't you live to see that? And my therapist said, when someone has made up their mind, 
there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you could have done. And there's nothing that you could have done differently. It's just, there's nothing you can do. Yeah. I mean, I, I tend to agree with that. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think there are times when, you know, you can intervene and you can help. Um, but I also think that, that there are cases when you can. And, you know, one of the things I do with the uh, American Foundation for Suicide Prevention is do outreach with recent survivors. And I'll never forget, it was a, it, it was a family with multiple siblings and one of the older brothers of, of the kid that died said, you know, <laughs> I really thought about going out there Thursday, you know, and just giving him one more hug or, you know, giving him a hug. And, you know, I just, I just believe he'd be alive if, if I'd done that. I'm like, you know what? You could have gone out there Thursday night and given him the hug and he drove back home and Friday morning, he still could have done the same thing. Yeah. And then what would you have thought? I should have stayed. You know, there's always one more shoulda, coulda, woulda. Mm-hmm. So yes, I, I believe, you know, you have to do what you can to try and help someone. But a lot of times, like Donnell said, they're not giving out the clues. You know, how many times did he call Bert and Bert said, I'll call you back, didn't call him back and he didn't kill himself. Right. You know, it's it's just, you can't pin it on the one thing. And it's the same thing we say when, when people end up, you know, there's not one trigger. It's not because they were getting a divorce. It's not because they just lost all their money. That yeah. may be the final straw on top of a lot of other multiple things, but yeah. how many people does that happen to? Yeah. And they don't. So that's, you know, that's how I have to look at it. I mean, my mom, she had, she had a plan. She had a note, you know, she knew what she was going to do. And yeah, I thought, I I sort of felt bad. I thought about calling her that morning and didn't, but more because I thought she'd be more upset that I wasn't paying attention to being at school than I was to, you know, whatever she was going through. And that's why I didn't. So I couldn't really feel guilty about not calling it because either way, you know, I would have been screwed. Right, right. It wouldn't have mattered. Right. I think that's the hard piece for people to understand. People who I don't I don't have suicidal thoughts or tendencies. I don't have any kind of I, I've never been someone who's I mean, I have situational depression like everybody else. And I had postpartum, but those were very situational and very specific. I don't have a like a dark mood or any 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 kind of I don't have that. So for me, I don't I go. I, this does not compute at all. Like it doesn't compute at all for me. So, and I think a lot of people are that way. So, you know, you can only experience life through your own filter, really. I mean, you can try to put other filters on for pieces of time, but most people I don't think walk around thinking, oh yeah, he's definitely, he's definitely borderline suicidal. You know, it, you'd have to have some pretty strong behavior, especially for the, our friend, he was doing great. He was working, he was writing, he was, he was, he had a girlfriend, everything was awesome. I mean, the really, for someone who has no thought process that this is even something possible, it was such a shock. Now, I did have another friend who passed away in, um, I guess, about a year ago, and he wrote a very long letter. Um, he had um, had something very tragic happened that was his responsibility. And when I found out that had happened years and years ago, I thought to myself, he's not long for this world. This fella is not going to be here. He's not going to be able to live this. And he did. He couldn't. And after years of trying and years of therapy and years of working at how he felt about himself because of this tragic thing that happened, that was his responsibility. 
a mistake, complete fluke mistake, but still his responsibility. He left and he wrote a beautiful letter. And I remember reading that letter and thinking, I, 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 I don't want to say it out loud even, but I, I, I understand. I understand this in a different, for this specific person and his specific experience and the way he laid out how hard he tried to live with himself. I, it broke my heart so much to read that letter because, you know, you don't want every, everyone you want to pass away, especially at their own hand. But I was like, oh my God, this poor fellow had just been suffering, suffering with this feeling. Um, but he is someone when that accident happened, I thought to myself, he is, this is, he's not going to be able to, to make it. And he didn't, I kept every year. I was like, he's still here. He's still here. It's working. He's working through it. He's working through it. And then one day I was like, oh boy, bless his heart. Yeah. So I don't know. Anyway, it's, uh, I don't know how that story is really relevant to suicide prevention. <laughs> I mean, it's one of the risk factors is trauma, you know, depression, all these things play into each other. And even your friend who didn't show the signs, you know, as a depressed person myself, I'll say sometimes when things are going well, it's it's a little hard to live with because you don't feel you can't appreciate it. You understand everything. I'm not 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 live with, but you understand everything's going well, but you still don't feel happy. You know, what's it going to take for me to feel happy? I've got everything I want right now. I'm living my dream, but I still feel this way. What, you know, so, I mean, I don't know, Donnell, you can speak to your experience, but I know, you know, it's the same thing with people telling, trying to explain to you, you've got everything to live for. You're like, I get it. I get it. I get it. I know there's people a gazillion times worse off than for me, but you know, the way I see it, well, at least they've got each other or at least they're, they've still got a family or whatever. You know, it's like, we can all play into our own grief. So, so is that depression? Is that what depression is? Well, I mean, it's part of being depressed is you don't see things clearly or, you know, your feelings outweigh the, the rational, I think. How do you see it, Donna? Yeah, no, I do. And I think, you know, you asked the question, you're not sure what that story, you know, what the relevancy of that story is. And I think it's actually really powerful because we've got three people right here sharing experiences, sharing our stories and look at how different they all are. And how different each and every person processed the trauma or processed the situation or processed their struggles or whatever. And I think, I think that is the relevancy of it is just how it's, it kind of made me giggle in the beginning. You said like the whole burrito and I'm thinking of like a seven layer burrito. I don't know why that, but there's so many layers to mental health and a suicide. And so that's the relevancy, I think. So I think it's really important that you shared that because it is so different than our stories. Right. Because again, look at all the people that do even intentionally harm other people or, or do whatever the tragedy was and they don't kill themselves. People go to jail and they'll come out and, and think they're God's gift and, and live happy happy lives, you know? Mm-hmm. So it, it is, it's, it was that individual's makeup, that specific circumstance that all played into it. One of the sweetest souls I ever, ever knew. Just a sweet, tender, tender fella, just a sweet, tender, kind, giving, warm, just a sweetheart. And uh, it just, yeah, it was, it was really. And I mean, suicide's unnatural. Like, you know, our instinct is to live. Yeah. So 
So the idea that someone can do that, especially if you haven't ever, ever really lived with depression or, you know, gone to the dark side, um, it can be really confusing. I can see how it would be, you know, and even in my own life, I've, I've, when I hear people like Donnell's stories, I can say like, I've been down there. I've, I've had those feelings, but yet whatever is in me and my makeup never flipped that switch to right. become actively suicidal. It may be because my mother killed herself. And I said right then and there, I mean, I sort of remember saying to myself, there goes my option. Not that I had actively considered an option, but, you know, just kind of didn't want to be Thanks a, a lot, mom. Or dollar, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> but, you know, so whatever. I just, it never seemed, it seemed like a choice for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it could just be fear. I don't know. But, um, yeah, so wherever I was going with that. Is where I, was I have going. a question. It is dang scary. <laughs> it's dang scary going there. Yes. <laughs> I would imagine it's dang scary i would use a word stronger than it dang. is <laughs> fucking scary I, I would as, <laughs> thank you yeah. yes it is yeah and 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 i'm i'm sure we'll get to this place but it, it's really interesting to me to look at the years past and what brought me to that place mm-hmm. i hit a, i hit that dark place again after my son was born And it wasn't until about the last, which of all times of our seasons of life, it wasn't until probably about March or April of this year that I can tell you it's now we're in October. This is the first time in my life that I've had this many months in a row that I have not had a suicidal thought. Wow. Wow. And I'm, and I'm old. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) That still boggles my mind, though, because even after learning, uh, knowing everything you do and learn all the work and research you've put in, the thoughts still come. And I I have that wellness toolkit that I always talk about. Right. Like I have my coping skills. I know what it takes. And I know for sure when I get to that place, how to pull myself out. Mm-hmm. But it took all those years of exploring and educating and really trying to understand who I am and what my triggers are and allowing myself really to get that vulnerable with myself and mm-hmm. allow myself to really to learn and explore. So, yeah, it's I actually I can tell you that I cried to my husband probably about a month ago because I couldn't believe it. It's the most amazing thing ever. Um, but yeah, even after all of that, and even in the fact that I educate and I'm a health coach and I have all of these things. And like you said, like I have all the reasons to be happy, but sometimes I would still go to that place. Okay. I have something to say about this. I think that's amazing. But the other piece of that, I think people listening should understand is this was a life's journey. This was not, I'm going to go to therapy for six weeks and I'm done. I'm going to take this one class on coping and I'm good. I'm going to go see a cognitive behavioral therapist, get some tools, not practice them and call it a day. No, no, no. That's not how mental health works. Mental health is a lifelong process. And I think, I don't know how that's not just understood. Like you can't, especially something like what you're talking about, depression, Uh, My husband and both my children have anxiety issues. Bert's sisters have anxiety issues and his dad. 
You can't stick a Band-Aid on it and go, done. It is a lifelong investment and process. And you, it's amazing that you've come to this. I don't know how old you are, but I know that it's, I can tell that it's taken you a, a few years at least to get all this stuff kind of in a manageable, completely manageable, settled way. That can be applied to depression, anxiety, to um, any kind of mental health, um, to a marriage and how you work at a marriage. Um, that was so great that you said that after all these years and now finally, and you have all these tools and you have all this training and still you have those thoughts. That's really important for people to hear that even though my daughter has been to cognitive behavioral therapy, even though she practices her anxiety coping skills that the therapist gave her, she still sometimes has a panic attack. She can't reel in. And the therapist absolutely her, sometimes these will not work. Right. I'm, after all these years in my life, it wasn't until 30 years after my mom's death that I really let myself go to therapy. I mean, I'd been a couple of times during immediate crises in my life, but I, you know, every time they want to talk about her, I'm like, nope, that was her deal. I get it. I made my peace with it over. But, um, you know, and so I've, I've only been on the mental health journey of, of about seven years now. And I'm not very good at it. I don't go regularly. I don't, I've been to cognitive behavioral therapy and I still have three pretty much blank workbooks sitting. (laughs) I I mean, I, I am not proactive and that's something I struggle with too. Why can't I let myself be that person that wants to better myself, that wants to get better, you know, feel better or take control of this situation. And it's a huge struggle for me still. So it's, there is no easy fix. And, you know, even when I started with the suicide thing, there was a good six month period that I was riding a high. I'm like, oh my God, I found my thing. I have my purpose. And I really did feel it. But like everything in life, it becomes part of your life. And once it becomes part of your life, it becomes part of the everything. And right. it's not, and yes, it's still my purpose and still a driving force for me. But, you know, it's, I, I'm not riding the same high over it that I initially was. Right, right, right. Right. Were you going to say something, Donnell? No. No, I was just going to reiterate the idea of, of this really being a journey. And I've talked to a lot of people. I've mentored a lot of people. And, you know, one thing I always remind them is that this is, this is with you forever. Mm-hmm. So right. even as you start your healing process, your healing process is going to shift and adjust over time because experiences and things in life shift and adjust. Mm-hmm. And so this, you have to be open arms to the fact that this is a lifelong thing that you're going to have to work through. And I, I try to compare it to things that I think society is more open to. So I, when I'm educating in schools and things, I talk a lot about how, um, you know, if somebody was diagnosed with cancer, we would, we would offer anything and everything to help them. We would do everything we could in our power to help them without judgment, without shame, we would be all over it. And that person that's struggling with cancer, even if they come into remission, it's a lifelong process. It's a lifelong journey to never get back to that place, to do whatever they can in their own power, whatever those skills are, their diet, their exercise, their stress or whatever to make Mm -hmm. the, you know, the rest of, of their journey as, good as it can possibly be. And I, I don't, I don't think there's really a big difference here between a mental health journey and, and a physical health journey. No. So I think when we can compare the two, it's, 
hopefully that helps to, you know, I don't want to just break the stigma. I want to shatter it. It needs to like be so broken up. <laughs> I agree. It needs to be <laughs> gone. Just eradicate. There's so many things like even cancer though, even in physical health, like people didn't used to talk about cancer like 20, 30 years ago. They, they yeah. And that's, I mean, yeah. who doesn't talk about cancer now? <laughs> you know, same with like right. me too, you know, three years ago or how long is it? I don't even know if it's been three years now that that's really been out in the national national psyche, you right. know? Right. And I mean, it's amazing what the power of conversation can do. And just, you know, by us having this, hopefully it'll lead other people to have that conversation and you know, just even little bits at a time, but the, as long as one person is open to talking about it, you know, it, it just leaves room for everybody else to come in. I agree. You know, there's something as strong about embracing things, you know, I like words. And if you can find a, a specific word that works for you about how you um, approach your mental health, if it's to, oh God, if it's to embrace the thing that is scaring you or is difficult, if it is to incorporate it into who you are, if it is to um, be curious about that, to invite, even to invite uh, what's bothering you to show up because you can handle it, you know, it, it just lessens the power it has over you based on how you deal with it or face it or talk about it or label it, you know, even to me, when I found that book that was described my childhood experience with my mom, it gave me a label. And as, as much as you don't like labels, sometimes labels can be very effective. And you can say, you know, this is what I experienced and it fits under this heading in this category. And now I can handle it. But before I didn't understand what it was and it was everywhere. It was all over me. So now if I can get it in this little bitty place, I can go, oh yeah, I can handle that. Mm -hmm. So I'll invite you to come sit with me on the couch and let's talk about this experience I had with myself <laughs> as a child, you know, it's just a different way of, of thinking about um, tackling your issues really. Cause like, like I said before, everybody's got them. They may not be about suicide, but they'll be about something, mm -hmm. you know? So I have a question I wrote down when you, one of you were talking. Um, how much do you think faith plays into mental health? Donna? Did you say how much does faith? Yeah. Sorry. Faith. Faith being religion <sighs> or belief in a higher power or... Um, a belief that things work out how they're supposed to, or any, any kind, it doesn't have to be faith, religion-based faith, but how much, or do you at all think faith has anything to do with positive mental health? Wow. That's, um, <laughs> <laughs> that a stump question? <laughs> yes. And yes. And no. And only because, um, I will tell you, I have always been a firm believer that things happen for a reason. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, I don't know where that came from. Um, but I definitely, I definitely believe all things happen for a reason. And, you know, I think, I think 
if I'm going to label myself, if I'm going to label this health issue um, in my life, I'm going to label it um, with the word pride. Mm. And I have pride in the person I am and the struggles I've experienced. Mm -hmm. And when I started to come from a place of pride, I'm proud of who I am because I am doing really good things Mm -hmm. despite all of those challenges. Um, it completely, it completely changed the trajectory that my, my healing was on, um, the path it was on. But I, I, I tend to be a lean into my faith person. I do. I do things happen. I do. And, and and it works for me. It may not work for everybody. Um, I don't know if there's really a science behind it or, (laughs) or even a study, actually, I might have to look that up. But, um, for me, absolutely. I believe that I was meant to find my purpose and I didn't even find my purpose until just a few years ago when I, you know, found this community of people and and all of that. But for me, yes, I think so. Right. What do you think, Ruth? Um, I I pretty much agree. I mean, I I think I come from the other side of learning that things happen for a reason. You know, I can see in retrospect how, how they've come together. Um, And, you know, I mean, I, I think faith gives you sort of that bigger picture of something of to be, just believing in something, believing that there's a reason for, for something, for anything, you know, that, that we're all in this. Um, it's, I'd say the only caveat I put on that is, you know, when it comes to um, formal religion, I think, you know, one of the big problems it's, you know, suicide is a international problem. There's, there's no culture, no yeah. ethnicity that escapes it. And a lot of that is religion. You know, that's one of the big reasons it's a stigma because pretty much every religion has a stigma against it. So, you know, when, when you say to turn, turn to people, turn to your faith leaders and stuff. Yeah. If they're trained and, and get it, <laughs> but it's hard because, you know, religion's a weird thing, but faith. Yes. I, I, I believe that believing in something and, and having purpose gives, gives you a reason to live. I agree. I, I think faith is a big uh, piece of mental health. And faith can be learned. Um, I believe it can be learned. Um, I went to church as a child. And my mother also was very into Maharishi Mahishi Yogi, uh, which is transcendental meditation. So I had backgrounds of organized religion or practice, but I don't do any of that now. But man, the stuff I learned from it, I draw from all the time. Um, that this kind of like, basic law of the universe comes from faith. A lot of, you know, law of cause and effect sometimes comes from faith. It can be scientific, but also it's like do unto others as you would have them do unto you kind of is actually true. (laughs) So if you treat someone shitty, somehow shit comes back to you. So (laughs) I am very faith based in that way too. And I wonder about people who struggle with deep, dark, depression what their faith looks like like does it do they have it or do they have it and it's failing them and if it's failing them how is it failing them how can they fix it you know I wonder because if you have a strong sense of faith and you're feeling suicidal how do those two things go together does that make sense how can you have a strong sense of faith and still be suicidal well, I, I think because to be suicidal is actually, 
if we really look at it, is more a physical issue. It's the makeup of our bodies. It's, and that's why they say diet and exercise and all of these physical things play such a huge role in somebody who struggles with mental health. Um, so I think, I think I've, like I said, I've always been a firm believer that everything happens for a reason. So it's like, if we were to pick that apart, then why, why would I be somebody who has struggled with suicidal ideation as an attempt survivor, but I have all this faith. And, um, I agree with what Ruth said. Faith is almost, if you were to use it like a a sense of hope Mm -hmm. that something is good going to come, you know, and if you can hold on to that and for somebody who maybe has lost their faith, because I think it's in everybody, but maybe has lost sight of that. We need to find things that are more tangible, maybe more of a physical for them to hold on to long enough to find that faith again, long enough to find a little bit of light, a little bit of hope until all of a sudden that becomes their guiding, their guiding force again. Right. Yeah, I think it's also what, what might be leading them towards the despair for, for the suicide. Cause like in my mom's note that she left, you know, she was, she was pretty clear. She, she was physically ill at the time and she felt like she was being a burden on our family and that she was holding my sister and I back from our education. And my dad had just gotten a great new job and she felt like he couldn't focus on that. So her, reason for doing it was more like, I'm doing this for you. You know, so I think her faith was more like, I'm going to be the good mom. I'm no longer useful here to the situation. So I'm going to step back so they can go ahead and have a good life. So I think that was an act of faith that for her, that we would have good lives and two out of three, she was right. But (laughs) three out of three, three out of three. Anyway, um, so yeah, so I, you know, I think, I think it's hard to quantify the word faith um, only because it's so personal for, for every person and what they believe and what they believe about themselves and how they, how they fulfill their role in this world. I think it's a huge part of it. Faith has always been a, a question for me in every, I think when we talked about, I did an episode about depression, you know, I have no understanding of of like chemical medical depression. Like I don't understand. I can't get in the shower. Like my brain doesn't compute. I understand that it is real and that it happens, that it is for real for that person. But my brain goes, seriously, you can't get in the shower. Come on, two feet on the floor. And then one foot in front of the other. Come on. What's the problem? And I, I mentally understand it is actually a impossible for that person. But my genetic makeup, like you were talking about, suicidal people have this kind of genetic wiring, or I guess, I think that's what you were saying. It's that way for depression mm-hmm. too. And and for people, is people who have these tendencies, suicidal thoughts or ideations, understand our conversation. People like me do not. And they go, Well, you just don't do that. You know, most of the public goes, Yeah, you just don't do that. You just don't make that choice. So part of having conversations about it is so people who like me with someone who's depressed goes, yeah, you just get in the shower. It's not brain surgery. (laughs) And understand that's not exactly, we're not all apples to apples. We're not. And 
that's part of the problem and the overall understanding of mental health or even suicide. Because I think when, at least like I was talking about before, when Bert's friend killed himself several years ago, the questions that just run in your brain of what was your responsibility is so torturous. Mm-hmm. And if we could just come to a place where you go, this has nothing whatsoever to do with you. Exactly. This has, oh, and I can- and I can tell you that for certain, it had nothing to do with anybody else. Right. right. That moment was, it was about me and feeling that that was it, that I just could not live with the pain and the sorrow and just this darkness any longer. I was exhausted, mm-hmm. physically, emotionally, just ex- exhausted. And I need, I need rest and this is the only way I'm going to get it. So it had nothing to do with anybody else. That's an amazing statement that you were exhausted. Because I think my friend who wrote the letter, my friend who wrote the letter was exhausted. He was just exhausted. And I, you know, that letter just, it just broke my heart because I, exactly what you described, I think is what he had just, he had exhausted every possibility for getting help Mm -hmm. and he Mm -hmm. was just exhausted. And like, like, yeah, like your example of getting in the shower. So your brain goes to, you know, actually getting your feet on the floor, getting me to the shower. But a depressed person will have that conversation. Same words. What's the big deal? It's one foot, other foot, get in there. And it'll keep going for 20 minutes, for 30 minutes, for two hours, for four hours. Now it's three days later and you're still not in the shower. That's My brain goes, but But because your body goes, no, because, because. And there's no reason, there's no logical reason why you won't get in the shower. You just can't, like whatever. And you're pinned down and it's physically like entrapping. And, but that's what I'm saying. That's the exhausting part because it's not like we don't know these things. And it's not like probably, (laughs) I have no guilt about (laughs) being in the bed. I tell you right now, I could go jump in the shower, no problem. (laughs) Right. But I would imagine it perpetuates this like self-hate spiral. Totally. Makes yeah. it worse. Right. And then, oh, yes. Right? That's, that's what, if, if I'm yeah. imagining what it would be like. Right. It would be like a hamster wheel of hate. Right. right? And that's it's, where the exhaustion and, and all this despair comes in because it's like, it's all in my head. Mm-hmm. So how am I going to get out of it? Right. Sounds terrible. Right. It yeah. is. It's like you're spinning your, what are those acts that spin plates? Oh yeah. Just don't go anywhere. And you're just kind oh, of, yeah. I mean, and it really, it, it's, it's becomes physically exhausting. Like you just have no energy to even try to live life <laughs> if you wow. wanted to. So, yeah. That's not fun. It's not. Well, I know when I had postpartum, my postpartum looked like rage. And rage mm-hmm. has a lot of action in it. So I would I never could not get out of bed, but I could break the toilet lid on the toilet. No problem. <laughs> and I feel much better. <laughs> you are so speaking to me. You know, what's interesting is they've actually, um, I guess postpartum can actually start when you're actually pregnant. And I could remember the day. Yeah, I remember the day I was four months pregnant. And I remember the day and I think it was, it, <laughs> I was having symptoms of rage. Um, and that's exactly what it, 
what I experienced with my son for years. Rage. Quietly. It's it's a rage. It was rage. Like I was just angry. This is a whole different uh-huh. episode. If it's you look at but oh, I could be in on this one too. <laughs> Not pregnant, but only on rage. Oh, but the rage? Oh honey, oh, yeah, I, I actually, feel that rage. All that I always life. end up hurting myself though. Like I'll break my toe when I kick something. <laughs> it only enrages me further. Oh, my God. Right. Now you're in your cycle, your vicious cycle. <laughs> right, right. We should, I should, I've been looking for someone, Donnell, to talk about postpartum because one of my good friends is a therapist who one of her specialties is postpartum. And I was like, I need to find a mom who's had it like legit for real. I have one mom, but she's kind of hesitant to come on and talk about it. So if you're interested, Donnell, maybe we'll do another podcast with my friend who's a therapist and talk about postpartum because postpartum is so excuse my French so fucking real and it is I remember having it and watching myself have it and knowing this was not uh, real and not being able to control it and watching going you're actually breaking your own toilet because instead of your child I wanted to throw my kid and instead I went in the bathroom locked the door and broke my toilet and then I was able to go back and parent. And I finally, after I broke the toilet and went to the doctor and was like, I think something's wrong with me. <laughs> I broke my toilet. <laughs> and she went, oh, honey, you, you, need, you need some medication. <laughs> and so I got, uh, she, uh, she just put me on birth control and it righted my boat. It was all my body needed. Now, I know mm. that's not the case for a lot of bodies, but for mine, my body just needed some estrogen. <laughs> I don't get my testosterone. <laughs> <laughs> well, and isn't that the case with like all mental health? So postpartum, anxiety, depression, bipolar, I mean, the whole list, ADHD, all of it, all the, all of the treatment is going to be different. Totally. All of the therapy looks different. So, you know, as a coach, I try to help people create this, this toolkit and it's going to look different. Sure. I'll share things that have worked for me and we could try it out and see if it works for you. But essentially everybody's toolkit looks different and, and some need medication and some, you know, so I think that's powerful. And yes, postpartum is a thousand percent real. Oh my gosh. And I have to say that the effects of it are lasting because I will tell you, and I know this is for another show, but I can tell you that, um, my daughter who's older, she comes to and so we're a place where we're trying to kind of rebuild what that relationship is supposed to look like because mm-hmm. there's a lot of moments of trauma for her. Right. It's scary. We definitely should do an episode about that, Donnell. So I'll be I'll be emailing you later. Okay. Um, but, um, <laughs> topic at hand. Okay. So not to disclose too much about why Ruth gave this talk to my group of moms, which was great and helpful. And the discussion I had with my daughter the other night that led to the saying, I'd traumatize you at some point, was directly related to what we had (laughs) talked about on that talk, right? So obviously everyone knows I have teenagers. um, And I have a... Our question was, if someone in their group talks about suicide, how do you handle that as a parent? How do you handle it as a parent of a child who talks about suicide? And how do you handle it as the parent of a child whose friend talks about it? Because I know 
it's what what you had said in our our PowerPoint um, Zoom meeting, Ruth, was that you know you always have to take it seriously, mm-hmm. and at the same time, sometimes it's not serious, and right. sometimes it's a call for help for something else, or is an indicator that there's another underlying mental health problem or crisis going on, mm-hmm. and how in the world do you suss that out? Right. Tell me, ladies, how do you suss that out? You don't. <laughs> you don't. You somebody who can. <laughs> right. Um, Donnell, what a beautiful you... picture. I Was know. that you? <laughs> beautiful picture. He's a beauty queen. Um, oh, gosh. Thank you. Sorry. I thought I had my phone on Do Not Disturb. So, oh, that's a tough one. That is a tough one. Um, I, I feel like I have of both sides. I can tell you that in my family, we are very much an open, let's talk about it family. So my kids know that if they ever have an issue, if they are ever feeling down or whatever the case may be, they absolutely can come to me. Um, and I will ask questions and I will dig a little bit deeper. Um, and is it scary as a parent to think that they could then answer me you know, honestly, and be really in a dark place and full of pain. Absolutely. But the flip side of that is if I don't, mm-hmm. I, I, I just, I can't even talk about it, to be honest with you. Well, what, um, but as a, forward, what questions do you, mm-hmm. would you ask? What questions? Would you um, ask? I, I'm, this is real and raw. If you're ready, oh, I'm ready. <laughs> uh, if you're ready. Okay, so So my son, he's 11 and he struggles with ADHD. And I would say within about the last year or so, he has said things like, I'm just going to go kill myself. And it's like, oh, I mean, every inch of, I I can't even, (laughs) I mean, to even describe that as a parent to hear that is beyond, but I'm able to, I'll ask things like, did something happen today with me? Did mom do something? Did dad do something? Did sister do something? Did something happen at school? So I get very specific. Well, what did that person say to you? And what was your response? So I get him talking about whatever the situation is that led him to think that and then we brainstorm ways and I, and I, you know, I let him know up front, I get it. I understand it. And I'm sorry that your mind took you to that place. You have to know that's not an option, but let's figure out an option that is going to work. Let's find some way that it, it, that we can get through whatever the situation is. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just getting them to talk and really, really digging deeper into what the actual issue could be to understand maybe what took them to that place or whatever the case may be. And I think for, I actually, my daughter has a friend that I am, I am talking with. She had reached out to this group of friends. And of course my daughter knows what I do. So she said, mom, is there any way you would talk to her? And I said, I will, but I'm going to let you know right up front. And I'm going to let your friend know right up front. If this is going to go to a place where I think there's actual concern, I will involve her parents. Right. I will involve a teacher. 
And I think it's really, really important for people to know that they've got to then turn to somebody. So if it's a, a friend of a friend, they need to know that they take it serious and, and that they need to get help. They need to find somebody either, you know, through school or whatever the situation may be, but they need to turn to and say, I'm really concerned about my friend. This is what's been said. And I'd rather make sure that they're okay and have them angry at me or not even be my friend anymore, but make sure they're still around. Right. Right. That was one of my takeaways from Ruth's little zoom, not little zoom, Ruth's zoom (laughs) was that I was like, in speaking to my daughter about what I'd learned, I was very upfront with her and told her I went to this zoom about how to deal with someone who may be suicidal in your teenage group and how to deal with your own child where that other teenager is concerned. And I just laid out everything I'd learned and said, beautiful. So this is how my parenting is going to function where this is concerned. Because I can't go to a seminar and learn something and go, yeah, I'm not using that. Well, that doesn't make sense. So I learned, one of the things I learned is that you may be able to drive, but you're not qualified to deal with someone who comes to you and says, I'm going to kill myself. You turn around and find the closest trusted adult you can find and tell them. And if that adult can't help, That adult can find someone who can, but you are not qualified to be her counselor. You are not qualified to save Mm -hmm. her. You are not qualified to be her mental health specialist. You are qualified to be her friend. And that is all you are qualified for. So I love that you think that you can save the world. I love that part of who you are. That is inaccurate information in this situation. In this situation, you are not qualified. Mm -hmm. And, and thank God you're not. <laughs> so just get help. Could tell somebody. Right. And you don't have to tell me. I keep yes. saying it doesn't need to be me, but it needs mm-hmm. to be an adult that you trust. And we have, I can name eight right now who you could tell half of them don't even know this young lady and could still figure out how to help. So Perfect. laying out that information before, I mean, they had a crisis moment with this young lady and which is what initiated this need for a zoom call. And so now that we've had this education to really say, here's the plan. Um, here are the people you can go to. Here's what you need to do. Here's when you hear this from her, go get somebody. And you know what? Something happened after I'd had that conversation with her with her friend and nobody went and got an adult. And I pulled my daughter out and went, this is not how this works. This is when you should have gone and gotten an adult. You should not have tried to deal with any of this. This is when, you know, okay, I think that I'm, this is above my pay grade. I kept saying that you just need to know when it is above your pay grade. And when someone is in a mental health crisis, like a full blown panic attack, that's not your bag. Go get an adult. Right. Well, because also, I mean, you know, lay it out to her. Like if if it hadn't worked out okay at this particular situation and the girl had ended up hurting herself or even dying, how would all the friends have felt then? Yes, I did not go to result, that. Having to live with that for the rest of your life, knowing that, you know, no, it's not right. your fault. She killed herself, but you didn't actively help her when right. you could. 
you know, right. And you knew you should. So that's, I mean, not to try and like guilt yeah. trip on people. No, that's but really powerful. That's, I mean, that's just the reality of what could happen. It's one way or the other. Either she's mad at you for getting somebody to help her mm-hmm. or she's dead. She and you're mad at yourself that's right. forever. Right. Yep. And I make sure, I, I think, especially with, with teenagers, because they do want to protect that relationship and keep the, you know, the, the honesty tribe. and the the trust and all of that. That's it's yeah, that's tribe. their tribe. Yeah. But I, I always be sure. And I, I told my daughter for sure, but in every class that I have the opportunity to educate in, that's one of the very first things I say, mm-hmm. you rather have this person hate you and be alive. That's what you could walk around and live with the fact that they're still alive. You can either mend the friendship or not. It doesn't matter, but they're alive. Right. Versus, right. you know, trying to, like you said, take this on and, and right. this is heavy and this is deep. And sometimes they need more than just a conversation, right? They need, they need actual help. So thank you for doing that with, with your daughter and the friends. That's really powerful. It was a great, it was great night, Ruth. You, well, you guys that, did a great job. I'm glad you guys put it together. But I mean, I also say to people like, I'd have a hard time working on, um, on a um, crisis line, you know, and listening to people mm-hmm. being, because that I'm depressed. Like I, I'd be going, mm-hmm, I see, it. I can understand, <laughs> you know, whereas like my heart's with the survivors. Cause that's what I know, right. you know, so it's, we all have our different skill sets too. Right. And it's not, you know, mm-hmm. I know I wouldn't be helpful in that circumstance. So I'd never put myself in that circumstance. Right. You know, and that's what I think everybody needs, you know, the kids need to learn too. It's like, yeah, they, they just don't have the skills and it's not like they're not coming from a great place of wanting to help their friend, Right. but it's just not helpful. And that's what they need to understand that it's not. That helpful. was a brilliant illustration, Ruth, of, I can't be there with you on the crisis hotline because that is damaging me or I'm alive with it or whatever. I'm helpful over here. <laughs> yeah. That's a great lesson. That's a great perspective I should present to my daughters is mm-hmm. that not everybody helps in the same way. Mm-hmm. Some people are meant to do what you do and some people are meant to be on the crisis line. Right. Um, and right. Mm-hmm. one's not better or worse than the other. They're just different. Exactly. And, and that has to do with your wiring a little bit too. And how, what you're wired for. I, I would have a really hard time on the hotline also. I think I'd be like, oh, where do you live? I'll be there in five minutes. I'm coming over. You want me to some I'll muffins? I'll bring your dog to pet. I got you covered. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I, would, I wouldn't be able to just listen and be compassionate. I'd be like, how do we fix it? How do we fix it? <laughs> so like, yeah, that sucks. I yeah, can't. yeah. Um, it was one more really important thing that I learned from that zoom and I've lost it. I should have written it down when it came in my brain. Um, Oh, uh, something else that I said to my daughter was, you know, I understand that you want to help your friend. And I think that's very noble, but my job is to take care of you. Mm. As much as I would like to help her, I am not her parent. I'm your parent. So if I feel like you're in a situation that's unhealthy for you, I will be removing you from that situation, not to the discredit or the discounting of your friend, but because my job is you. Now I can circle around with other parents and help the other kid, but 
That's none of your business. I actually said those words. That's none of your business. Your business is what I am parenting with you. And what I think, I don't know if you said this directly in the Zoom, but I got this in my brain. Sometimes these coping skills rub off on the group. So if the young lady threatens suicide, doesn't go through with it, threatens it again, doesn't go through with it, what she's doing is, and I, I mean this, this is going to come out terrible. So please be patient with me. That's a form of emotional terrorism. She's holding them hostage by saying, I'm going to go bounce. Now they're all in crisis. Now they're all in panic. Now they're all focused on her. Mm-hmm. And that's not healthy. Now, removing the suicide piece from it, right? Mm-hmm. If it were something else, if she were, if she had some other mental issue that wasn't, she's going to die from this. And it caused them to hold the group hostage. That's very unhealthy. So then if my daughter starts doing Hail Mary passes with her own stuff and holding me hostage, you see, it's rub, it rubs off on the group. I explained that to her too. This is how this young lady is coping. This is how she's saying, I need help. And it's not healthy. It's not healthy for her, first of all. Because if she's serious and she means it, that's a crisis. If she's using this to scream for help, help, she is in crisis. Whether she's serious about killing herself or not, Either option, she's in total crisis and she's demanding full attention from the group immediately and until she's done. Right. And that's not healthy. So now you come home and have a similar behavior with a similar, it must be this right now. And I go, that's not healthy. And where could you have learned that? Because we don't do that behavior in our house and our family culture. So now I have to separate you from that for a different reason. And I think that's the piece she actually understood. And I was like, you know, it's the same with people who use drugs to cope with their emotions. If someone's smoking weed because they have anxiety, you have anxiety, you go, oh, I'm going to start smoking weed. Well, guess what? That's not the healthy way to deal with anxiety. <laughs> but you see someone else use a coping mechanism, you go, that looks like a good idea. Mm-hmm. Well, then you probably shouldn't be running around with that person using that broken coping, coping mechanism. Or you should at least be able to recognize that that coping mechanism is broken. You know, it doesn't mean you're not friends with that person, but it means that you're able to compartmentalize how they function versus what's healthy yeah. if they're unhealthy. No, I think it sounds like you've explained it very clearly to her. Yeah. I mean, very specifically. I don't know if she liked it. <laughs> huh. she enjoyed of course it. not. Of course not. Among other things. But I love that I love that you recognize there were different pieces in your explanation that that resonated with her. Yes, right? they definitely were. Uh, and yeah. she didn't like it. I, at the end of my conversation, she I said, I can tell that you're not happy with me. And she said, No, I'm not happy, but I understand. Right. I was like, okay. Well, <laughs> isn't that the way of the teenager anyway? Yeah. <laughs> then let's sleep on it. Yeah. Until the next day. And at the end of the day, you have to set healthy boundaries as a parent. And you have to be the one that says, hey, this part's not healthy. You know? But you didn't tell her who you had that conversation with about suicide parameters, did you? Because I don't want her to hate me. No, no I didn't tell her. No. I'm kidding. 
You wouldn't hate you anyway, Ruth. Joking. No way. <laughs> no, no, I don't think I did. Oh my gosh. I, don't, I don't think I did. Um, not for any reason. Just to tell her that I took a class with some certified people. They worked for the National Suicide Prevention. I don't even know if I said it right. If I made it up, I made it sound really official. <laughs> yeah, she knows Am- Amory. I did it with Amory since she's a teacher. I'm like, she can let you know what the kids are saying. Right. <laughs> and she can also let you know what the resources are in schools because the schools do have resources. And, you know, that's what because I was I was even thinking more when I was first approached. Maybe the moms could get together and do something. But Anne-Marie was like, no, it's, this isn't up to the moms. It's not, you know, it's not their business. It's they need, you get it to the next person. You get it to the school and it's the school's business. Cause so. we're not qualified either. Right. Right. I'm not qualified to handle that as much as my heart. Uh, I feel so bad for her that she doesn't have support at home, this young lady. And that, um, in the resources they've reached out in their public school system, hasn't been effective. So I don't know if she's not paired with the right person in the school system or if something's not communicated. I have no idea. But so that is a good question for people who are listening. What what are someone's resources? If you have a child who is suicidal and you don't have a gazillion dollars and can go to therapy, um, what resources are there? Well, I mean, there's plenty um, like the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention on their website. They have a list, you know, page to go. Like if you want to help somebody in crisis, if you're in crisis, different. um, So they send you to different things. You know, individual therapy is great. Um, You know, group. There's a lot of group support um, sessions around there. There's different kinds. There's books, there's movies, you know, there's different things depending on what what calls to you. but and again, a lot of a lot of mental health places do things on a sliding scale. If you don't have a lot of money, um, Donnell, do you know specific places around I, here? You know, I was going to say, I definitely think looking within your particular area. So, for example, out where I live, we've actually created a website that is specific to our valley. And we have resources broken down for youth, you know, for all the different communities within within our area. Um, and what they specific, what they, um, what they're specific in. So what are the different issues that they will work, work with? What are the different age groups that they work with? So I would definitely, I know, um, ours is connected to like our city website. Mm -hmm. So I would definitely recommend, you know, starting with a city website and seeing if there's any sort of resource list there. Um, but one in particular that I, I just absolutely love, and I think it's so powerful for our teens, is actually TeenLine, TeenLine.org. They're actually based out of Los Angeles, but they are national. And what happens is um, you can text, email, or call. Wow. Is then connected to another teen. So they work with ages anywhere from 13 to 18, but you're connected with somebody within that age group that has been highly trained to to talk with you or to text with you or email, whatever the case may be. And really cool is they will actually follow up with you. So if I were to call in today and this is my struggle and I'm explaining my story, they will actually ask, Hey, can I check on you in a couple of days? And they will follow up with that person. And they kind of establish this relationship that I just think is 
is really cool because it's, you know, age to age, which I think for teens, they really want that connection, you know, parents and adults don't know anything. So <laughs> to be Tell able to speak, yeah, <laughs> to be able to speak with um, somebody that's your own age, who kind of gets what you could be going through, you know, the times and all of that stuff. Um, so that's a really powerful one. And they are national. I think they're, I think their call center is uh, West Coast time, Pacific time, but I want to say it's like two to seven or three to seven every day, something like that. But I would definitely, I recommend that to a lot of, of the teams that I, I get to work with. Teenline.org? Teenline.org. So I wonder what resources in the school, I guess you could go to any teacher or principal. Could you, I wonder, could you report, what happens if you report to like a fireman? Anything? Hey, I have this kid who's suicidal. Are they an automatic reporter or? I don't know. I don't know either. That's a really good question. I'm not sure. Police officer. And I think, well, I think with the schools, what's difficult is a lot of the schools aren't, they don't have a plan in place. Mm. So um, I would definitely say the counseling unit, if there is one, would be a place to start. And then. I mean, I would go up from there. I, I think it, every school's a little bit different. Every district's a little bit different. Some have policies in place and and procedures, and some have you know been able to to get that out to their students and to the parents and things. But I don't know that. Unfortunately, I don't think it's readily available in every school. Isn't that a shame? It is. It is. I really think it needs to be a part of curriculum. To be honest. Oh, there's so much that needs to be part of curriculum. I think oh, high school. That's another, that's another podcast. <laughs> oh, that's a whole nother. Believe me. Would you like to do a podcast called Leanne's Soapbox? Because that's what it is. Education. I freaking have a lot of opinions. I you, love I, you have an ADHD child. I have a dyslexic child. Mm. Let me tell you something. It ain't they it's a broken system for anybody that doesn't learn exactly the way you're supposed to learn. And yes. if you don't, you are shit and you're made to feel like shit. Even under the best circumstances, you're made to feel like shit. It's terrible. It's criminal. And there's so much of our population that's left behind. So this no child left behind bullshit they put in place destroyed so mm-hmm. much of what was working. Oh, I have so much to say about that. Different episode. Different episode, Connell. Different episode. Okay. <laughs> so, suicide prevention. Is there anything someone, is there anything you can do as someone who is not suicidal? Like I was asking before, like my therapist said, if, if someone makes their mind up, there's just really nothing you can do. Well, you so get stubborn. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, you got it. <laughs> no, you. No, you. No, you. I'm so stubborn. You are so going to speak right now. <laughs> All right. I mean, you can always try and you should always try. And you have to assume that maybe you're the only one that's going to try. So, I mean, the best thing you can do is really just start a conversation. I mean, if, if you're worried about someone and thinking, hmm, I wonder if there's something going on, chances are they're probably at a crisis point if they're letting 
that much show. Um, and it's just, you know, the best thing you can do is just directly ask somebody, are you thinking of suicide or are you thinking of killing yourself? You know, don't be coy. Don't think, are you going to hurt yourself? You know, just be abrupt. Say, I'm, I'm worried about you because I've noticed a change in your behavior or I'm worried about you because I know, you know, so many life events have come down on you all within the last month or whatever. Just be open and, and tell them why you're worried. Tell them that you are worried and tell them what you're worried about using those words because that will give them permission if they're ready to talk to you to use that word back or if they're not ready to talk to you and like a teenager might get mad that you asked at least in their brain somewhere they're like somebody noticed and it might open up them to have permission to talk to somebody else like to find some a therapist or something so there's no harm in trying in asking in worrying about somebody um and then, you know, it's it really is just about starting a conversation and then being able, willing to help find them help. Right. They say they need it. So what do you, what would you say are the signs? Are there any signs? Am I still going down now? <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. You're doing, you're amazing. Um, <laughs> I mean, the, I always say the biggest sign, I mean, that they come in three forms. One's change in talk. So saying things like I'm worthless. I can't do this anymore. I'm done with it all. Things that we've all said or heard today. Um, there's, um, ooh, what's the other one? There's behavior. And that could be any kind of different behavior. Like to me, it's a drastic change in that person's behavior. So if somebody's really introverted, rarely leaves the house, suddenly they're going to parties every night something may be up or vice versa. They're a partier and now they're home in their room all the time. Something may be up. So it depends on that person and, and what different behaviors you've seen. Plus it, it can be mood swings. Um, and like we were talking, rage and irritability are a huge part of this that people don't always look to. People think depression is sitting in a corner being sad. It's not, it can be these other things. So like I said, any kind of thing, um, really different behavior. And what's wait, it's talk behavior and what's the third and move, and move. Oh, I just lumped it in with behavior yeah so there we go so those <laughs> those are kind of the warning signs and then um talk about risk you know what to do in risk Donnell <laughs> if you think someone's in crisis Donnell also to you Donnell <laughs> you're doing so well I I just love listening to you and and chatting with you. Um, so they, they, they talk about risk factors. Um, some of that has to do with environment. So when they talk environment, I mean, we could, you know, home life, um, it could be somebody who recently lost a job or is getting a divorce or so environmental things definitely play, definitely play a role. That history that I talked about before is, is considered a risk factor. Um, and now, see, I forgot the third one. Oh. <laughs> Environmental history. And uh, I totally just drew a blank. Oh Ridiculous. God. Oh, my God. What about someone giving away their possession? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a behavior. Yeah. So those are some of the things like that. Somebody's really in crisis. Um you know, the really talking about it, talking about a plan. If you find evidence that they've been looking up, um, looking up ways to um, find a means. And that's that's really the key factor when somebody is in crisis is is to separate them from a means. So like one of the things um, AFSP does is 
is uh, we have a program about gun safety now, not taking your guns away, but just, you know, putting a, a lock in them. Because even in that 15 seconds it can take to, to find the key, put the key in the lock, open it up, the crisis mind may have shifted or somebody might have walked in the room. So it's really key to, you know, just prevent somebody who you think is in trouble from being around dangerous means and, and separating them from them. And then it's about getting people help. You know, once you discover somebody is in crisis, say, you know, it's which can be from, you know, finding them the number for a therapist, taking them to the first appointment to a therapist or taking them to an emergency room or calling 911 if it's that drastic, you know, um, it's it's all important and it all depends on where the where the situation is. You can never overreact, I don't think. Um, mm-hmm. You can underreact for sure. And then again, the one thing to remember though is once you, if you're there and you do find somebody help or whatever, you're not responsible for keeping them alive forever. You know, your job was to get them help and get them away from that terrible situation at that moment. But you can't take it on to that you're their sole sur- savior. Yeah. That's a great thing to say because I think most people would feel, okay, now this is my job. Right. No, absolutely not. Because you're, uh, you're, not, you're only responsible for yourself on this planet. As much as we are responsible for our children, we're really not entirely. There's only, you, you keep them safe and warm and fed until a certain age. But after that, they are responsible for themselves. Hopefully you know, built on the values you've given them, but they don't have to, they're not required to agree with every value you have or every boundary you set. And at a certain point, they are no longer yours, you know, and it's the same with your friends and your spouses and everybody. There's only so much you can be responsible for. And that goes for bipolar, that goes for any other type of mental illness, at a certain point, you have to be separated and you have to allow them to go their own path. Even if this sounds terrible, but even if the path is tragic, there's a certain point where you have to allow them their own path and help them not to hopefully not go tragic. But like my therapist said, some people you just can't, there's nothing you can do. So. I, w- I was actually, I took part in a question and answer recently and somebody asked, you know, can you use guilt to keep someone alive? You know, can you, and I'm like, well, I mean, maybe, but you probably shouldn't because wouldn't the goal in wanting someone to be alive be them to want to be alive? Like they already have enough on their plate, which is why they're going down this path. So adding guilt on top of that probably isn't the thing that's, you know, going to turn it around for them. And, and that's what it is. It's, it's, you know, only they're in their mind and only, and they have to live with it. So you can only take things so far for another person anywhere. Yeah, that's very wise and very sad. This it would be nice if you could just go, and I'm going to help you forever. And it work because it, it doesn't, it just doesn't work. I mean, growing up with someone who I believe is mentally ill, there were so many times where I was like, I can fix this. I can make this work. I can make these adjustments. I can carry this burden. I can keep trying. And at a certain point, I was like, why? My mother is not even meeting me sort of halfway. 
she's going like, what, what are you doing? So why am I doing this for, cause clearly the other person doesn't want it. So then. Or isn't able to take it. Isn't able to take it is more accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, that is right. He's not able to manage this shift at all. And what and what kind of damage did it do to you in all that time you were trying? Exactly right. It it did. And not to be someone, because Bert used to say before he had any experience with my mom, he used to say, I don't understand why you can't just figure this out. Much like I say, I don't understand why you just can't put one foot in front of the other and get in the shower. Right. Sometimes there's just no figuring it out. And that's hard to live with as the person on the other side of the person who can't figure it out. So it be it suicide or whatever. If you're on the other side going, I couldn't give them some of my strength, experience, knowledge, wisdom, fortitude, whatever it is that they didn't have enough of to persevere. It's hard mm-hmm. for that other person to say, Oh, well, not that you ever say, oh, well, but you know what I mean? To say, that's on you, buddy. It's really hard to get to that place and not feel responsible. But, but, yeah, but you're also, but you're not doing it out of meanness or, or disinterest or whatever. It's, it's yeah. just the way it has to be sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Ladies, anything else we need to say about suicide? Anything you want to wrap up with? Don't do it. Don't do it. Ask for help. <laughs> get help. Call Dot Mel. She'll help you. Teenline.org. <laughs> Teenline.org. Um, I just want to remind those that are listening to um, to reach in because for somebody who has been in that place before, a lot of times somebody who is struggling is not going to reach out. They're not going to ask for help. They are surrounded by guilt and shame and all of these other things that are you know, are keeping them in that place. So just just keep reaching in, just keep checking in on your loved ones, um, genuinely and without judgment and just be there to listen. That's great. I always tell people if you, if you need to say something, talk. And if somebody needs to talk to you, just listen. Great advice. I think this was a good talk. I learned a lot. Good. I thank you. I thank you and Ruth both for, for coming together and recognizing just how important this is. I think, again, in this season of life we're living through, this this is the time. If we're going to start breaking down these, these walls and things that are up, this is the time to do it. And, and I think people are more open, perhaps, than they ever have been before. Mm-hmm. And so I just so appreciate you putting putting the light on this. I think it's so critical. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing, being brave and sharing your story, not just to me. But to, in general, to, you know, anybody you meet on the street to be able to share these harder experiences makes it easier for everybody, right? If we're able to share, it makes it easier for everybody. Yeah, that's my hope. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. <laughs> Until we talk about postpartum and the broken educational system, Donnell. I'll be calling you twice. <laughs> I'm here. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. I'm going to stay on the Zoom and do an intro with um, Halston. So nice to meet you, Donnell. You as well. Thank you. I feel like I've known you forever. Uh, (laughs) So, and thank you, Ruth. I'll see you. Thank you.
Sure. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Bye. I think that we should get together